Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's show we're going to be talking all about how fintechs in Africa are building up a historically underdeveloped financial industry in the world's youngest and fastest growing continent. It's important to start off by making it clear that Africa is not a monolith. It's not a single country. It is a vast continent comprising various cultures, people, geographies, economies, but we have to start somewhere. So in this show, we're going to be focusing specifically on fintechs and the financial services industry in sub-Saharan, East and West Africa. To help dive into this topic, I'm joined by some phenomenal guests. Uh, Making some fintech insider debut, we have uh, Benjamin Fernandez, who is founder and CEO at Nala. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. Can you tell us a little bit more about Nala, sir? What's up, everybody? My name is Benjamin Fernandez. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I work with the Nala team. Uh, Nala is a mobile payment service that enables you to make payments in Eastern Africa, specifically Tanzania and Uganda, without a data connection. Uh, that's how we grew, and um, that's where we've uh, we've been based in. So, yeah. Phenomenal. Um, and of course, data connectivity varies for everybody. Huge, huge benefits people to be able to use digital even when there is no data. Um, also joining us, we have Farah. Um, I'm not going to try and say your next couple of names because there are so many vowels in there and I'm just going to butcher it. But your co-founder and CEO and CTO of Okra, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me, everyone. Um, yes. So my name is Farah. I am the co-founder and CEO CTO of Okra. We're a financial services data aggregation company. So we're building an infrastructure to allow end users, so that's individuals and corporates, connect their bank accounts directly to third-party applications. Phenomenal. So would I be right in saying that Plaid is a, is an equivalent to what you guys do, or is there a significant difference? Yeah. So we've localized for the market, definitely, but uh, similar to that. But we have other um, other methods of connecting your bank account, so like releasing USSD very soon and so on and so forth. So um, just localized for the market, but definitely. Good, good to have a metaphor sometimes to, yeah. to, to find a way in. And last but not least, we have Akeem Lowell, who's Divisional Chief Executive Officer for Transaction Processing and Enablement Business at Interswitch. That is a long job title, sir. How are you doing? Uh, hi, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. And hello, everyone. Um, yes, it is a long title for a massive portfolio, I think. Indeed, indeed. Interswitch, uh, remind everybody who that who that is and what you guys do. Um, no, so Interswitch is an Africa-focused uh, digital payments and commerce company. Um, we're focused on building out and growing the digital payments and commerce infrastructure and services across Africa. Thank you, Akeem. Uh, good, good reminder. And of course, um, as we know, uh, there's been sort of a huge, huge cash market in Africa for a long time, but that has been changing for more than a decade. Um, there's been a real, real move in the last 10 to 20 years in financial services. Um, and, and Benjamin, uh, I wonder, you know, from the markets you look at, what have been the biggest sort of historical changes? And, and what do you think normal looks like day to day for dealing with money? It's moved along from cash. And where's it moved to? Yeah, so it's definitely evolved. I mean, since 2007, you had the involvement of M-Pesa in the market where, you know, it was like the first mobile money-based service. Uh, but over time, you've seen multiple services built on top. So it started in Kenya, moved to Tanzania. Uh, to date, um, according to GSMA, the 2019 report, it, it said $400 billion was transacted in uh, mobile money in just sub-Saharan Africa, which is crazy. And just about 200, $200 billion of that is just in Eastern Africa. Uh, within four countries, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, uh, and and a little bit of Rwanda. So uh, there's quite an influence here, and and with the mobile. But unfortunately, we're still we're still cash heavy. So cash is still king uh, in the market. You know, there there is still massive space and opportunity for a merchant space to be built on top. But you know, for right now, their mobile money is primarily moved for used for peer to peer transactions, and um, as it started to send money home. So a lot of people move migrate from the rural regions to the uh, primate city. Uh, and try to work and then send money back home as a peer-to-peer transaction is the main use case is what we see the most. And then now it's more individual. Farah, I saw you nodding along as Benjamin was talking there. Would you agree with that? And and how do we how do we move away from cash and should we? Um, yeah, I think that um, we've done, we've seen a lot even in the West African and Nigerian space and to, to, uh, move towards like a cashless uh, policy, cashless society, the idea that, you know, we're doing payments, you see a big emergence in the payments remittance spaces. Um, but I think that as you see more people get getting online with internet banking, uh, more just even internet adoption, just uh, uh, more, um, more access to faster data speeds and so on, the consumer behavior will shift. Um, and you'll see that more people are online just even generally now with these times uh, and 
uh, with USSD being uh, primarily big in this market as well, uh, with about a 60-40% split towards uh, 6% um, with uh, USSD. We have 40% with internet banking. Is that as those uh, as those two points start to merge, um, I think that you're going to see a lot more growth in those uh, in those sectors as well too. You've got an inflection point coming, I think, in the near future by the sounds of it, as, as the technology enablement really starts to shift. But Akeem, is there an opportunity to kind of leapfrog uh, a little bit of what you might have seen in Europe and the US? I mean, we've seen with a lot of uh, China, for instance, a lot of leapfrogging of like not putting in those incumbent rails, not relying on the banks necessarily. Is that how it's already started to play out in Africa and across different regions? And you know, will the story be different in different regions? Um, so I think leapfrogging is a given um, when you look at what Africa is uh, or where Africa is coming from, right? Um, 20 years ago, a company like Interswitch didn't exist, right? And all the payments were cash-based. Um, at the time we started, it was 150,000 payment cards in the market. Now we're looking at over 60 million in Nigeria alone. Um, now, uh, so and, and it's not just cards. So that leapfrog for cards was we didn't start with magnetic stripe, went straight to Pitampin and EMV. Um, markets in Europe um, are talking about instant payments, and that's the new big thing. Instant payments was launched in Nigeria as far back as 2011, when we're doing instant real-time account payments. Um, so I think leapfrogging really is, is, is a given from where we are and where we need to go. Yeah, I think we also, you know, we leapfrogged a lot of like Web 2.0 era and so on. We were building still like rails of uh, GSM and telco infrastructure and so on. So now you're seeing that, um, you know, of course, there's, there's some negatives that come to that. You have the, you know, you don't learn from some of the mistakes of building the Internet, you know, Web 2.0 and so on. But uh, you do see that because you're leapfrogging that uh, you you have a, a firsthand um, seat onto the, you know, with the fourth generation. So like looking at AI uh, and the move uh, towards, you know, data and and, um, and understanding how to use that in technology and so on and so forth. So I think leapfrogging, like Akeem was saying, is uh, definitely a given. And it's something that um, as incumbents here, we're, we're going to definitely see. Is there a loss, though, um, Benjamin, to, to Farah's point there? You're sort of hinting at the sort of the, this kind of um, a benefit to leapfrogging, but there's sometimes some some costs to it. Do, we, do you need a cards infrastructure? Do you need those lessons learned? And what are the big lessons really being being learned as people are trying and, and, and iterating at the moment? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, what Farah is working on is pretty cool. Uh, essentially, you know, a big challenge that why you don't see WhatsApp payments dropping in, in Africa anytime soon or any of these large-based services, in my opinion, is because in every single country, you have to figure out the pipelines that you're going to connect to. And that's the nightmare. Yeah. So that's yeah. why you don't see any B2C companies scaling across the African continent, primarily because uh, the pipelines are missing. And, you know, for us, the, the channel that Farah talks about is USSD. That's essentially for those who are, who are listening who don't know what that means. It's essentially where you dial into your phone about 40 to 50 digits, uh, like in your dialer pad, just to send money to the next person. Now that, you know, mobile money has been here for 12 years, but that is the same system we still use to transact today. You know, that $200 billion I was telling you about that's transacted just in East Africa, 90% of that is down on USSD. Um, and you know, that's the primary channel that everybody's focused on. But the difficulty is scaling. You know, you don't see many fintech business to consumer companies scaling across the African continent because the pipeline's not there. You do see many companies, yeah. whether it's InterSwitch, whether it's uh, what Far and Okra are working on, uh, whether it's Floodwave, Paystack, they are trying to build pipelines in different aspects and different manners, respectively. Uh, but those type of companies are much needed before we're going to see a whole generation or era of quote unquote digital banking, as we saw in the UK. Um, I think personally, I think where Africa is today is probably where maybe Ospers was in 2013 in the UK. Um, and not even that, you know, we don't have many card based programs that work properly and effectively in, in a lot of these markets. Uh, most of the times yeah. we've gone to talk, we're doing like all the pipe building ourselves. And so for a B2C company, it's so much extra work you have to do. And now imagine scaling that in five, six countries. Yeah. Yeah, you can't have innovation without the proper infrastructure. So, you know, whatever that infrastructure is um, to see the, the B2Cs grow, just like Benjamin is saying, I mean, you just need that infrastructure. And we're in a fragmented market. Uh, we build infrastructure uh, on top of, you know, of um, non-existing pipelines, uh, generally speaking. So it's like we're still just trying to build these things and then uh, catch catch the market up to what we're doing. 
I think, um, Farah and Benjamin, you were talking there a little bit about the interaction between fintechs um, and and kind of them having to build the, the, they've got to build the sort of the railway company and the rails. And and actually building both of those is really hard and really expensive. But, but Akeem, is there any interaction between uh, either the telcos or people who are building the rails like the banks? What does that interaction between fintech and some of those incumbents look like? And, and, and also between nation states as well? Um, well, actually, I, um, I think you raise a very valid point, and I think the most important thing um, is the rails, right? Um, before you can build any digital products or consumer product, you need to build the right rails. Now, in markets like Nigeria, Interswitch has built the rails. In markets like Kenya, Safaricom is providing rails for others to play. Um, but those um, rails or those infrastructures don't exist in many other African countries. So one of the things we've been thinking about doing is putting in place those core infrastructures that then allows us to build those rails. Uh, but more importantly, and I think uh, Farah kind of alluded to this as well, is it's not enough to build rails for Nigeria. It's not enough to build rails in Kenya. You need to, at some point, connect that together into an African network. Um, one of the frustrations I have is if I'm trying to send money to Ghana and it first has to go to the US or to the UK, um, and then you have to be exposed to the foreign currency um, challenges. Um, it's a challenge. Now, I think as infrastructure providers like Interswitch um, and service providers like Nala um, um, and, and, and the rest of the, uh, the fintechs in, in the space, it's really important that we start thinking about how do we interconnect the countries across Africa to take advantage of this huge market um, that is probably the largest um, regional economy in the world, um, and which can probably then be further opened up as we sign and execute on the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that, especially building rails uh, to open up this economy outside, even just as we build our own <clears throat> B2C products and so on and so forth to uh, grow upon. But how do we have, how are we as Africans able to buy something, let's say from Amazon, ship it here? Um, and these, you know, all that, all that sentence seemed like a very easy sentence, you know, how do we buy something and ship it? But that involves an entire rail system of payments, of logistics, of last mile, you know, how do we build this infrastructure across this, you know, whole thing? And, and, and one of the biggest aspects is fintech, you know, why, how do we even start by paying for this? And, you know, how do we start by doing that without opening ourselves up? So, yeah, it's almost like in the early days of the United States, you had the railroad building, then the interstate building, and then sort of the the uh, local banks came together and then they put together the Fed wire program and then the, the federal bank system. It evolved over time and there are some problems with that now because it's incredibly hard to change. It's incredibly expensive to continue to run. Luckily, their economy is just about big enough to to make that still all work. Um, but it's it's very, very different when you're starting from scratch and you have to put the rails in. Um, I know you guys are probably familiar with Mojo Loop from the Gates Foundation and there's a number of other standards initiatives do you think it needs like an internet style standard or is this something the market can do or is there going to be a bit of both there are you going to need that collaboration piece i know benjamin you mentioned flutterwave for instance it feels like flutterwave are more at that stripe level they need the thing below it to be figured out first yeah i think you know the challenge the challenge you have across you know and i, I know you've mentioned telecoms and banks um some of them are, are quite resistant to change you know my personal perspective is your apis are only as good as they're opened uh, where you can enable a developer community to build on top, where you can enable uh, tech startups or fintech companies. You know, there's a joke. Um, like, so we were part of the Y Combinator Winter 2019 batch, and if you look at it, just just do the math. There has been 37 Y Combinator companies that operate from from Africa, right? And um, in total, from those 37, 33 of them still exist today. And, you know, if you look at that hit rate for the investments, um, it's, it's really, really high compared to, let's say, your average US-based investment, maybe one in several hundred exist, still exist uh, to date. But one of the things, my, my point of there is the joke that people say is, oh, you have to be a fintech company to get, get into the program. And what you notice is across most of those companies, they are fintech companies because they end up building the rails to just solve the problem they're trying to solve for. So like you have an agricultural right. company that's helping yeah. farmers, but they end up being like agri-tech and fintech. You know, you have a, somebody who's just trying to help people pay school fees. Uh, and so it's an ed tech company initially that evolves into becoming a fintech company. And I think it's because these channels are missing. It's because it's so hard to do that. And, you know, personally, I've had, you know, part of the reason why we built uh, USSD automation, um, you know, there's other services like usehover.com, which I recommend people looking up. 
Um, but essentially what this enables you to do is it enables you to access USSD channels without necessary permission. Um, but which is, which is tricky, which becomes dangerous because then you get a nice letter telling you to shut down, uh, saying like, oh, you're doing this without permission. You're like, well, actually it's an open public rail that anybody can access. Uh, and that becomes hard. So, you know, a lot of startups, a lot of tech founders are faced with such challenges. We face this multiple times. Um, and that's kind of the reason we're actually exploring something internationally for payments as well. Uh, right now with our team because of these issues that we face locally on the ground. You know, a startup can only take a certain amount of cease and desist letters where it becomes really tricky uh, because, you know, the large corporates and this, here I'm just t- telling the straight truth of, of what, what really goes on on the ground. And I think it's important for people who are listening or looking at getting involved into the space to understand some of these challenges, especially when you're building B2C or even when you're building the pipelines. You know, um, Far and I have talked a little bit about one of the first questions when we caught up was, uh, are the banks giving you a hard time? And 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 because that's what I would naturally see, especially if she came to Eastern Africa. Um, or this is like this is my lunch. Why are you guys enabling something else with, without my permission, or even with my permission? But there's so much hesitation uh, that it takes. But I think Benjamin, there's, that also presents the banks in the region. And if there are any are listening, I, this is my genuine opinion. Um, uh, with a massive opportunity, like the one that enables fintechs. Like I look at. Um, you know, A16Z have been publishing a lot lately about partner banks, for instance. Like the partner bank opportunity is phenomenal if you could unlock it across the region and if you could manage FX across region. Like that, that would be phenomenal. And you don't even have to build the APIs yourself. I mean, you know, there's Synapse and there's Marketer and Galileo, all of these players in the US. Or I look at the UK, there was Wirecard and much ballyhooed in the press, but you know, Wirecard, GPS. That from that comes Revolut, comes Monzo, comes Chime, comes Vara Money. And if those things don't exist, you don't get this this kind of wave of innovation. But behind the scenes, there's like Sutton Bank and Trust that's holding those deposits and doing really, really well out of it for a period of time. And they're outperforming the market by two to three X. And actually, it doesn't have to all be stick for the local banks. It can be a real, real opportunity for them. I think I can probably make a comment on, on that as well. I mean, just, just to support your point, Simon, I think uh, if you look at what's happened in the last three months, um, with the impact of COVID and the lockdown, um, what we've seen in terms of performance is that the banks who have either partnered and or adopted um, fintech or partners who have uh, played this role to support fintech innovations are the ones who have been less impacted um, by, by COVID, right? Um, when you look at transaction volumes across the industry, um, all the banks who are doing really well or who have had minimal impact uh, over the last three months are those who have adopted, uh, I mean, basically quite strongly the four nexus that are shaping our industry today. Um, they're very strong in fintech. They're driven by mobile. They're driven by data. They're open to social media. So for them, it, it was just business as usual for the last three months. For many of the other banks, they've kind of had to um, have a big impact in their first few months of this year. Kim, you raise a, a really interesting point, and sorry to, to kind of crush you there, and I, I can come back to you on this one as well, but we saw that um, garnering also eased some KYC requirements around mobile money, which cause that kind of speaks to Benjamin's point a moment ago around, actually, do we need to look at where risk is and where um, where compliance is and how you sort of balance um, the the risk of KYC AML versus some of the size of these transactions. You know, you've got to protect the user, you've got to prevent fraud, but at the same time, you've got to open up this access. And it's really interesting, Akeem, that you say that people that have done so are, are starting to do quite well. But is there a role for the state and some of the regulations as well, do you think? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's really important um, to understand the roles that a regulator plays. And I think the best analogy I've seen is you can build the fastest car with the greatest um, features, but if you do not have the right brakes, you can't safely manage that, right? So the, the, the regulators are the brakes, and, and I think they're there for a very important reason. Um, luckily for us in markets like Nigeria, um, the regulator has been more forward-looking. Um, they have a financial inclusion strategy, um, they have a cashless strategy, and they have put in place policies to help that grow. But they do have genuine concerns, and some of those concerns frustrate us um, and frustrate fintech companies, right? Um, issues around KYC, issues around terrorist financing, um, issues around money laundering. Um, and I think the, the faster we as fintechs are able to understand these are the concerns and these are the um, solutions that we can prefer to those concerns, 
um, we cannot we cannot take away the bricks. I, I think it's it's kind of like um, how I'm looking at it. Uh, Akeem, it's a really good point, and I think it's a good one for for Farah to reflect on because Farah, we we know that data can really play a big role in managing risk. And actually, if you can see both sides of a transaction, how do you think about the not just the enablement side of, of commerce, but also the risk side? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to, I think that what we've just seen with consumer behavior just generally over time is that um, they value convenience, um, you know, when it comes to doing things. So how do you as a company now secure them? And that's where the role of the regulator plays. And that's why, um, excuse me, I agree to Akeem's point of how, you know, regulators are there for a reason. They're not inherently bad. They're there to be the brakes to what you're doing. So um, you you have to build in lines with these things. But to kind of put a cross section between what Akeem and Benjamin were talking about generally speaking with just uh, how banks, uh, the banks that have been the f- most forward looking were the least impacted as well as how would these banks respond generally is we've seen uh, banks respond quite positively, especially the ones that were more uh, um, forward um, looking to what we are doing, because at the end of the day, they need that infrastructure and they need those rails as well. Uh, because especially when you look at, you know, the market that we're in as well, um, banks are in other businesses, they're in other sectors, they do other things. And for those things that they knew um, um, they do, they need uh, they need the same type of infrastructure, the same type of rails. So when it comes to the uh, data, just generally speaking with users, I think that you want to make sure that the power and the control is in their hands. They have the ability to have, you know, the control of their data. Um, they understand how they're sharing it, what, what's going on. And I think that as long as you're dealing with informed consent and you're dealing with um, and you're staying within regulations, I think that uh, you can build really good thing. Uh, I think that the consumer will still at the end of the day design, decide the consumer. Yeah. There's an art there, isn't there, too? Um, so I love how Stripe looks at strong customer authentication in Europe. There's this regulation that's driven, and then the, they immediately set about, okay, how do we design the best possible experience that stays within the spirit of this regulation, but also is as easy to use as possible? And there's a real role that fintech can play there, both A, advising the regulators on, like, where do you find this line? Because the goal is the goal is to minimize the risk and and maximally benefit you know the original purpose of, of kind of fintech and i guess speaking of international i mean benjamin you mentioned uh y combinator and sort of the the west coast vc money it does seem like um there's a lot of vc money pouring into uh, a long long last fintech at least in, in africa uh, 2019 was a big year um visas obviously investment in interswitch as well there's there's a lot of stuff happening why do you think this has started to happen do you think people have just gotten the opportunity do they see the need to to build the rails and and how do you think about that sort of uh, west coast investment and and the type of investment in local companies versus maybe the chinese investment and, and investment from other regions oh that's a, that's a touchy subject um especially in nigeria <laughs> um with what's been going on recently um i think it's hard so you know you know and and i think it's going to happen like even to some some extents that 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 go just beyond like U.S. versus China, and I think at some at, at some as, aspect it might be th- that way. So I'll give you a personal example. When we were uh, raising our round during Y Combinator, um, we had a a big ticket offer from a Chinese based VC fund and one from a U.S. based VC fund who was leading the round, and literally. Um, this is, and by the way, I, we didn't take either of these people's money. So just in case uh, somebody goes like, tries to find out who, uh, but one of them said that the US based fund said, Hey, if you take their money, we're out. And literally word for word. Um, and I was shocked, uh, but that, and, and, and why I said, why, why that's kind of strange. It's like, okay, well, the political tensions between the US and uh, China are just going to increase over the next three to five years. Uh, we don't know. We just want to make sure our, our LP's money is safe. And this was literally a discussion they had. And they said, you know, primarily because what we're seeing a- across the African continent, China's investing more and more across the African continent. Uh, China's so involved. Um, you know, one thing that, that, that becomes challenging is, and one challenge that we faced recently is a lot of our uh, phones on the continent are run by Transi, and it's a massive Chinese brand. Uh, where they have three flagship products, which are Infinix, ITIL, and uh, Techno. These are three, basically, the most popular smartphones across the African continent. And they're all Chinese-run. So therefore, they have the power to do pre-install. They have the power to do push their main products that they want to do. When you know, they, you know, other services that they build can use, let's say, the Rails, the InnerSwitch, or uh, Okra Build, they can push that on top, whereas other fintech or B2C companies don't have that access. And, and it becomes a whole different ballgame. Uh, to play in. And and I'm not saying that the US don't do that or Apple doesn't do that with Apple Pay. Uh, but I do think uh, over the time period, over the next five to 10 years, there is going to be a rise in tensions on like, 
all right, who's behind what and and whose money um, is, is backing what. And and I do see China in it for the long run and playing long game for Africa. Oh, that's interesting to watch, isn't it? And of course, we saw Opay that raised 120 million Series B, uh, led by Chinese investors. And then um, news broke in July that that fintech had reportedly shut down all its business operations uh, following a letter issued by some of its foreign investors. So there's definitely machinations there. But kind of moving uh, away from that slightly, um, Akeem, there was, I think, announced a 200 million investment by Visa into InterSwitch, you know, with a significant valuation, making InterSwitch a homegrown unicorn, which, A, congratulations. Um, but B, uh, what do you think that Visa brings to InterSwitch and what does InterSwitch bring to Visa? What, is, what does that look like? Okay, I'll make a comment on, on, on what Benjamin said earlier because um, it's one of the things that kind of, um, it's a message I'm trying to pass if I, if I can. Um, so it's good to get investment from the East or from the West. Uh, but I think the future I would like to see is a time where the investment is coming from players in Africa. Right. Um, whether that is VC funds set up in Africa or big players who have already succeeded investing in other fintechs or maybe just uh, pools of funds uh, being deployed. Um, I think on, until we get there, uh, my view is that investment is good, but I think that's probably where we, where we need to get to. Get to. Um, the, the, vis, the visa investment is, is really important to us. Um, thank you very much for the congratulations. We're still basking in that euphoria. Um, but really, what, what it is, um, it kind of speaks to one of the points that Benjamin raised earlier. It's the idea of having to build um, acceptance, digital acceptance, and a digital footprint across Africa. Uh, we believe um, that a partnership between InterSwitch and Visa um, and the potential that that creates gives us an opportunity to accelerate significantly digital acceptance across the continent, right? Uh, there's technology that uh, Visa can bring um, to support what it is that we're already doing. Um, and we're already beginning to see some of the benefits from that. Uh, we're rolling out QR infrastructure. We're investing in instant payments to support um, uh, payments across the continent and connecting that to international gateways as well. Um, so for me, it's really exciting. I mean, there's a huge opportunity. Um, and, and the beauty of it is that this, this rails that we're creating will allow other fintechs to be able to grow and scale and, and build what they need to build to solve the problems that we have. Huge. And we've talked a little bit about the rails and sort of putting those in place for other fintechs becomes really, really key. Um, I'm interested to, to Benjamin's point and Farah, maybe your reflections on this of, of sort of, uh, we saw the cards dominant model in, in sort of many Western markets. We saw the QR code, code dominant model in the uh, in, in China specifically and in a lot of Asian markets. Um, would something like InterSwitch sort of be a, a hybrid between those two? And what do you think consumers really, really look to as they're moving from USSSD? Are they looking for QR codes, what's the easiest behavioral switch or is that still being figured out? Okay, I didn't know what they're, okay. So um, I think that, uh, I think that, I think generally, even with Ochre, we're trying to figure that out too as well. You know, so we're, we're, uh, we've launched with the internet banking capabilities. You're able to connect to your bank. Uh, We know that uh, that's not enough for the market in order to steer uh, a new set of consumers who otherwise didn't have access to the same amount of goods. So like, how do I, um, as somebody with USSD, have the same access to the same uh, consumer uh, products or services or financial services, somebody with full internet banking, how do I do that? Or how do I, you know, port somebody from USSD into this, you know, let's call it next generation of, you know, financial services. Um, and uh, we're still trying to figure that out. But I think that uh, as long as, um, as long as you still strive to be able to connect uh, the people, the consumers that need access to these services, uh, then you'll find out, you know, what the answer uh, to that question, is I guess that's the the most articulate. We don't know yet. Um, yes. I think I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Benjamin, sure do you have a perspective? I, I do a little bit because we've we've explored both routes, right? Uh, the challenge you do have it goes back to my point on the devices. While there is a growth in smartphones across yeah. the African continent, uh, they're not that good. Uh, you know, yeah. one of some, something that most people don't realize is so we we probably I've per, I personally own probably today maybe sixty different smartphones just in my house um, of that are sold here like the techno devices iTel and things so we do a lot of testing we just try to play with them break them just to see like which devices serve different apps really well one major thing that is going to change over time is I think the big like a big dark horse that most people don't realize when doing B two C apps in Africa is app size matters. Um, yeah. you know, if your application yeah. is larger than 10 megabytes, 100%. um, that thing is just going to feed and feed and feed. And then on these like, you know, lower end smartphones, you're not retaining that user after a certain amount of time. 
And we notice that behavior even with our user base. Like people see somebody uninstall, you go realize, you know, actually their phone was full. And I'm like, wow, like I guess our app didn't even matter that much and they uninstalled it. And, and that, these are the things that I see as hindrances because I do talk to other BC, B2C companies across, not just in East, Eastern Africa, but in Western Africa as well. And they find similar issues. So, you know, one of the largest apps that, that, that has probably the most installs of, as a fintech company on the African continent is Branch, over 10 million installs on the African continent. Uh, but his rule of thumb is less than five megabytes upon download. And yeah. I think that's what enables you to to to, to keep those. So regarding like um, you know QR codes or or you know skipping that um, you know or, or cards, I I don't know yet. And I think it, I agree 100% with Farah. I think it's too early to tell. Yeah, but I think even to add to this aspect of you know even uh, app sizes, even localization for market, even internet, you know how how fast? What are your like we had to do a lot of things for the for the business to, to be able to still um, like if a if a customer is unable to connect, um, their internet you know stopped halfway or they had a trip in internet. How do you deal with these you know fragmented aspects of your market and still continue to build products? So that's why I think you know you still try to figure that out because at the end of the day you're still solving and putting out these fires that are very particular to your market um, uh, as well. I'll give you one piece of data that we found is uh, like the channel that Farah is talking about, USSD, where like most of the money across that's digitally transacted in Africa, within Africa or within countries domestically is is done on. Uh, what we found based on like over a million transactions is USSD has a 13% failure rate. And just imagine that. So USSD works without data, so it allows you to scale fast. But when you have a 13% failure rate, when a customer is using a B2C application that's dialing in these USSD protocols for you, they blame you and not the network. Yeah. And so you have to take exactly. the blame of yes. something that you can't even control. And like building that at scale becomes really hard. That's going to happen consistently. But I mean, speaking, we've spoken a lot about the challenges, but I think flipping to the opportunity a little bit, um, you know, there's the word financial inclusion kind of gets thrown around, but actually let's let's talk about what that means because there's there's a number of sources that say you know I think this one was um, Forbes, but you could pick them out somewhere between fifty five and sixty percent of all adults across the African continent are not included in the formal financial system, and as, as we know, most communities have um, some informal financial system or or similar, and, and the regional varies differ, but. What is what does the evolution of digital payments really mean to people? What are you seeing? I mean, Benjamin, I'll probably come to you and then to Akeem. Like, how transformative is this to people and communities? What, what's the actual impact of that? Yeah, and I, I think that the impact and opportunity that's available is massive, and it's growing. You know, there's 1.3 billion people on the African continent. Uh, we have the largest growing middle class in the world, uh, and I think these are the people that, you know, unfortunately, like that will help us move that scale forward. But you know, people are like, okay, well. Why don't you tackle and solve for the bottom of the pyramid? I'm like, yes, but the bottom of the pyramid is also the most expensive group of people to reach. And so if you're like, oh, impact, oh, financial inclusion, which is the term I absolutely dislike because uh, everybody's like, all right, we'll give you like grant money for financial inclusion promotion. I'm like, do you even know what financial inclusion means? Uh, it's just something I have a sensitive topic, uh, a sensitive uh, understanding of because people use the word financial inclusion to define metrics and impact values that they only care about, that they try to make up that doesn't even make sense locally for the African context. And I've seen many of these, uh, many of these. I, I used to work for the Gates Foundation. I'm not bashing them. I think the work that they're doing is super important. But I think when they're starting to stimulate growth, um, it, it's very easy to get caught up uh, in talking about financial inclusion as a way to like, all right, let's reach the bottom of the pyramid. And then they'll reach out to fintech companies that work on the African continent and say like, hey, you know, can you re do this for like super, super low income? And we'll give you like this, you know, $300,000 grant. I'm not saying the Gates Foundation does this. I'm just giving this as an example for many organizations that do do this. Um, it becomes difficult because even the fintech company that was trying to create the initial impact that they're trying to build, let's say they're trying to help um, small smallholder businesses like scale up or provi provide loans to them. All of a sudden, they're completely drifted away to what's giving them money to quote unquote promote financial inclusion. And three years later, they haven't achieved any of their goals that they wanted to. So it's just a sensitive topic for me because I think many use that as a term to, you know, kind of hide behind initiatives that we think this will be great for Africa, but reality, you know, 
that a lot of the people who work in the space probably know a lot because they talk to the most consumers or users at the end of the day on the ground. And while idea sounds cool on paper, for example, one that's more recent that's popping up and going to be massively large is this whole idea of alternative data and lending. Uh, Branch and Tala have had an extremely hard time in Africa over the last three months. These these were companies that were using alternative data and pieces of information on phones uh, to be able to credit score people. And what they find out, you know, I was talking to a credit officer, one of these organizations, and he was telling me, actually, the model doesn't really work that well. We had these cool wow. assumptions. It sounds well on paper. And, you know, a company like Branch hasn't lent in any of their five markets in the last two and a half months. So, you know, that's big news for a company that raises over $100 million. You know, it's unfortunate, but the, there's a lot of ideas. And I'm not here to bash Branch or Tal or any of these. Both founders are good friends of mine, but I'm saying the point is, there, there are, they are theoretical ideas that are often in, instilled or infused from the Western world that say like, all right, this would be really cool. Given the Africans don't have credit scores, let's use alternative data on phones and do this and this and this. And then it comes and backfires because let's say people, we see the data that people use. People will take out a loan to only take out from another instant loan app to only take out from another instant <laughs> loan app and then go to do yeah. sports betting or something like that mm-hmm. in this like get rich quick scheme uh, that never works. It's interesting that um, that's why I was sort of almost using uh, financial inclusion in air quotes. There's the impact people want to have and you know positive intent from from all purposes. And then I think in the previous section we were talking about just the difficulty in execution from the ground and dealing with customers day to day and and actually feeling and living in those problems. And there are different markets that have different problems. And and Akeem, I guess you're uh, acutely aware of this with building some of those rails. Do you think there's a role for or an interswitch in folks like it to move more into that data space rather than just facilitating transactions? Do you think that there can be impact that putting these rails has um, it for for different people to you know, provide credit or whatever else once they've got better rails to be able to do it from? Um, I, I do I do believe that um, companies like InterSwitch do. Um, um, and what we're seeing, to be honest, is um, we're seeing two types of fintechs, right? Um, they are the fintechs who are building the products and services and growing consumer um, services in the way that they understand it using mobile apps and USSD. Um, but there's another category of fintechs, which are much, I think, much newer. I mean, we're beginning to see them in the last two or three years, who are going into the rural communities and building solutions to problems for customers who don't have smartphones, um, who all they have is the ability to receive an SMS, right? Um, and what they're doing, uh, and it's not just fintech companies, even banks are beginning to do this. And what they're doing is they're leveraging on the agent network concept to build services that allows them to reach those people where they live, right? Um, and they're offering services like payments, um, remittances. Um, they're offering savings um, so that someone can come and save a dollar a day. Um, they're offering lending, right? And they're able to offer lending because by digitizing the savings and the payments that these people receive, you can create enough data to then build out credit scores and credit models to allow you to lend, lend to them. Um, now, that category of fintechs are, are growing. And here's what we're seeing, right? When you look at transaction um, in, in Nigeria specifically, and I don't know how this is working out elsewhere, uh, we're seeing that the agency transactions are now the fastest growing channel um, for any services in, in the market, right? Um, it's one of the few channels that actually grew quite significantly even the period, during the period of, of COVID. Now, the role that people like InterSwitch and the banks are playing is that they're providing the infrastructure to support the fintechs who are playing in that space. So while fintechs are building digital solutions. Just really quick on that, because I think that's a really important point. You know, for many people who are listening, they might not know what you mean by agents. Do you want to just describe what agents mean? Uh, Because it's such a critical part of the the foundation here of the African payment ecosystem. Yeah. Thank thank you. Um, and, And you're right. So. Um, and I like to describe agents as the millions of young Africans who probably don't have any other job to do and are being able to distribute financial services from their homes, from their small shops, or from their father's, uh, what they call it now, um, small room in, in, in the area. Um, now, these agents are typically onboarded by service providers like banks, and they're trained and they're enabled to serve the customers in their communities. So customers will come to them and say, I would like to receive a remittance and you receive it and the agent pays out cash. 
or I would like to do a transfer um, and they come and they give the agent cash and the, the agent does the transfer on their behalf. Or they want to pay a bill or they want to do um, airtime purchase or they want to save a hundred dollars, I mean, a dollar a day, not a hundred dollars. Not many of those people have a hundred dollars a day. So that agent network creates a critical way to deliver, deliver digital products to people who do not have access to, um, to smartphones, um, or in some cases, even USA. It's interesting. It's digital inclusion, but one hop removed um, in that you've with the, with the agent model. So you uh, you're, you're kind of creating a, a different distribution model, but you can potentially do similar and interesting things as a result, and you can achieve all of the, all of the similar outcomes. Farah, I'm interested from your perspective, though. Like, are there limitations to that? Um, and and Akeem, I think you then wanted to follow up on that because. Um, you can do a lot with the agents, but are the limitations? And is that um, the first step or, or is it a logical conclusion? Do you think it will lead to more? Um, I think that uh, I think that you can do a lot with agent banking. I think that because uh, they've built a, um, like you said, a, a, a jump over into a rail so that um, that data is still stored somewhere. When you do that USSD's channel, you still have access to that. Uh, so there's things that could be learned and there's things that could be ascertained in order to uh, maybe add value back. But just generally speaking, um, the idea, I think, um, as we move forward, at least for us, is to understand how do we get um, rather than inclusion, how do we get adoption? So like, how do we um, have edu- the educational points to, um, you know, move people along uh, to different types of um, different types of services that they can use? Um, but I think that there's a lot to be done with agent banking. I think, I mean, we even work with some agent banking clients as well. So there's a lot to be done around there just in terms of just understanding uh, that and understanding what will actually work and what will act- what, can, what services they actually need um, as well. Akeem, following up on that point, there was there's probably so much space to be explored there for like the traditional banks to partner, the telcos and others. How do you get the most out of that agency model? Um, it, it's um, it's a very interesting question, <laughs> um, and and I and I do think that the answer really is um, to think about it as um, platforms, right? Um, and then allow a bunch of people to build services on those platforms, right? Um, so. Um, and again, just to quickly make the point um, on, on whether this is the end or this is a step. I think uh, if you look at I mean, someone, one of the consultants that we work with kind of shared a maturity model for me for consumers. And you're starting from the uneducated, unconnected, unserved customers to a served but unconnected customers to a served and connected customers. And then they will basically move on that journey to the point where they can actually access those services from, from themselves. And then they don't need the agents, right? Uh, but to get to that, you kind of need someone to build a platform. And on top of that platform, you start plugging in services. And the way we're saying it is that the services that the agent then delivers to customers or consumers in their local communities will be services coming from maybe tens or perhaps even hundreds um, of banks and fintech companies, um, but are delivered through the agent as, as, a, as a channel. Um, the agent as a platform almost, um, which, you know, you would think about it uh, in a technology sense, you think about a platform one way, but it, it actually the agent is a platform in a, in a completely different way, which is which is really powerful. Um, and, and I guess um, that kind of leads me to, you know, we've kind of nicely moved on to, so where next? If, we, if we've got the benefit of agents, and I really like that model of sort of uh, unconnected and, and I think uh, underserved and then sort of... Uh, sort of served uh, but not connected and then putting the two together if people are moving up that where are the opportunities for growth i think farah you see probably uh, a broad perspective where do you see the opportunities for growth um is it sort of attacking cash is it solving problems in lending you know benjamin said that that's fraught with risk is it around the data side where do you see the opportunities um i think it's a i think it's in all these things that you mentioned um honestly it's uh it's really in first getting that access so like like i said you you know, earlier, financial innovation cannot exist without the proper infrastructure. For us at Okra, that's data. So um, with that, you know, how far uh, the fintech space can go is intrinsically tied to uh, the type of businesses, you know, that InterSwitch is building, Nala is building. They're intrinsically tied to these rails and these infrastructures um, that must exist. So where to next? I think it's the, the next generation of these uh, products um, and also access to other products in different markets that now can enter because these rails have been built. Uh, there's, you know, there's companies that would want to be in Africa that can't act- address this market because, you know, there's certain things they can't do, um, certain th- things they can't do at scale across uh, the continent and so 
so on. So as we continue to build this rails, I think that we'll see an advent of bigger B2C companies, bigger uh, fintechs, uh, just other different services solving a lot of unique needs as well. And you'll see a lot of unique use cases around agent banking, around just serving uh, this market uh, particularly as well. Farah, thank you for that. And Benjamin, I want to come to you. You talked a lot in depth and I think eloquently about some of the some of the challenges to being able to deliver in the market. But where are the where's the hope coming from? What it, what what projects? What are, what things do you look at and think actually the the rails are all being put there? Is it the agent model? Is it what is it that you really see? Yeah, I joke about this with 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 some of my friends who work in fintech in Africa. It's like, wow, I wish I could build like fifteen different fintech companies here, um, because the the need is there. Like, there is so many issues. So even just with a uh, one comment on on agent networks, agent networks are the backbone for mobile money. Uh, it's like where you take your your cell phone is let's say your 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 SIM card in Eastern Africa is your bank account, and you go to an agent, you hand them let's say ten dollars, ten thousand shillings. Um, over here and then you get a text message saying you've got 10,000 shillings in your phone and then that's how you can access USSD and send it to the next person. So uh, it's the backbone but it's also super expensive to build. So if you ask a fintech company to build an aging network uh, they're gonna like it's you gotta have a significant amount of funding to be able to do that or you're going home Uh, and so that's why it's super super hard and you know you know one comment I just wanted to just just mention Akeem mentioned uh, about agents these are people these these are jobs that people have these are people people that put in hundreds of hours uh, a week just to make sure yeah. the ecosystem flows. And and when COVID happened, a lot of these people got scared because of the cash movement. Uh, does, does cash transfer COVID uh, was the big question that everybody passed around. But the opportunities, well, I would say, just starting with agents is, let's say, float management. Float management is a big issue. Say so you go to an agent network. It's, it's like saying going to an ATM. Uh, and, and let's say you're in a cash-heavy economy. You go to an ATM to get cash, and there's no cash at that ATM. You go to another ATM. You go to another ATM. So you waste a lot of time just hopping versus just being able to get fronted the money um, right there yeah. and then. So I think there's a massive opportunity for lending in that space. I think, yeah. in my personal opinion, the best business-to-consumer lending in Africa in my personal opinion, happens when you're doing it salary based, which is limited, uh, but it just protects the, the the company the most, and and that's unfortunate because you know 76 percent of the economy just let's say in Tanzania is informal, um, and you know you have a tiny amount of people who who let's say two million out of 60 million people who have formal salary jobs, um, but that's just unfortunately just with so much instability. If you want to build a, a sustainable business, that's probably where you probably want to start with as your initial safest bet. Regarding like further opportunities in Africa, um, you know, I'm always long on Africa. I, I know that there's many different things, you know, whether it's from pipeline infrastructure, whether it's from data and identity, uh, whether it's from enablement of payments or just making payments cheaper. People always talk about uh, transactions being a race to the bottom. It is. But what are those additional services getting built on top um, of that? Like that, that's where I see the, the larger opportunity um, later on. It's huge if we can get it right. And and I think that's a nice segue to Akeem. I mean, where are you seeing the opportunities? I mean, InterSwitch has, has become a unicorn in its own right, but it's it's one percent finished, right? There's surely there's loads left to do. What are you focused on? What do you what do you think the opportunities are? Um thanks. Um I think that, that I mean, I think Africa has so many problems. Um and each problem is an opportunity, right? Um I like the way Benjamin put it. If he could, he would settle fifteen fintech companies because there are that many problems to solve. And each problem creates an economic opportunity for the person who does it best, right? Um, but what are what are we focusing on? Um, I think money flow is probably the most important within country um, and across the continent. People who've received payments or salaries need to pay their friends. They need to transfer to the villages. Um, and we still haven't touched a huge part of um, the economy, right? Um, as I, the last data that I had, is less than 10% of the payments that are done in Nigeria are still cash-based, right? It's a massive opportunity. And until we get that, I mean, it's a 90% opportunity that we haven't solved. The second opportunity that maybe is not as clear really is, is savings. I mean, I agree with loans, so I'm not going to repeat what Benjamin has said, but I think there's a huge opportunity for savings. There are many um, people who save, and I gave the example before, and it wasn't just an example. People save a dollar a day. Right. Um, even with people like OP, I remember one of the use cases that OP started seeing with many of their bikes um, and their agents is savings. That's putting their money there and putting a hundred naira or two hundred naira every day. Um, so that's the second um, opportunity. And I think the third opportunity for us is commerce, right, in country and across Africa. Um, and I think a lot of that will be driven by social media. 
Instagram. Um, we did a survey recently. Um, almost six or seven million of the Instagram accounts that are Nigerian owned are selling something. They are selling food, or they're selling grocery, or they're selling um, fashion or something. Um, those people are selling to customers in Nigeria, but they also want to sell to customers in Kenya, in Ghana, in Uganda, in Cameroon, right? And the payment infrastructure currently does not allow them to do that in a cost-effective manner. And if anyone can solve that, it's a massive opportunity as well. Um, and, then you then, and then you then move on to the bigger players, um, the cross-border payments and all of that. But, I mean, it's, it's huge. That it just feels like there's so much opportunity out there. And we saw that um, Shopify and many others are now working with Facebook on Instagram commerce. And you know, the, there are things that you could see that if somebody could have, run a business and then that could operate, even at a regional level, never mind across the entire continent, the, the economic opportunity that could unlock could be huge with, with, with just some of those basic rails in place. I think it's been a hugely, hugely interesting discussion. I think that leaves it at a nice place to wrap it up for now. We, I'm sure we could go on um, talking about this stuff because there are just so many so many interesting nuggets and stories coming out of all of you every time every time I ask a question but uh, we are out of time so I just want to thank you all for joining me so so much and uh, ask you where people can find out more about you and, and your company so far I'm going to start with you uh, where can people find out more uh, you can uh, check us out on okra.ng um, or check me out on LinkedIn Farah Ashiru Jutubo thank you so much Farah uh, Benjamin how about you I'm going to go the Akeem way. You can follow me on Instagram at Benji underscore Fernandez. Uh, no, Instagram is huge in Africa, but um, you can email me, Benjamin at Nala.money, uh, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N at Nala.money. would love to talk to anybody looking at international transfers, particularly actually from the UK to Africa. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, shout out to anybody listening that's looking at those transfers. Uh, absolutely. And uh, Akeem, how about you? Um, so I, I can be reached on LinkedIn, Akeem Lawal, or Akeem O Lawal. It's important to add the O. Um, and then for InterSwitch, uh, just check us out on interswitchgroup.com. Thank you so much. You can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or find me on LinkedIn as Simon Taylor. Thank you for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech, who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, pass along the pod, uh, share the love, share the show. Uh, and if you have any questions or feedback, remember to find us on social media, just search for 11FS or email podcasts at 11FS.com. That's all for now. Goodbye. <laughs>